1: I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, Erica Christakis sparked controversy on the Yale campus over issues of racial, religious, and gender tolerance there at the school. She'll sit down to talk with our Diane Orson about this issue and also about her new book on how we teach preschoolers. But first, recent years have seen more writing on a sore subject for proud New Englanders. It seems the states like Connecticut weren't always as clearly aligned with the anti-slavery movement as we once thought. Books like Ann Farrow's Complicity, How the North Promoted, Prolonged, and Profited from Slavery, takes on the stories we learned as kids about the unimpeachable Yankee ideals of tolerance and freedom. In its own way, Manisha Sinha's book, The Slaves' Cause, A History of Abolition, destroys even more of the mythology, dragging the abolition movement away from a story of benevolent whites and placing it, placing it in a context where slaves and freemen, Quakers and Haitians and Europeans all played very important roles. Her book also draws a direct line from abolition to social movements aimed at anti-imperialism and women's rights. You can join our conversation today, 860-275-7266. Again, our number is 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website, wnpr.org slash wherewelive. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where we live. Manisha Sinha is a professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and she is the author of The Slave's Cause. Welcome to Where We Live. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: First of all, tell me about why you were drawn to write this book from this perspective.
2: Well, I began this book as a history of black abolitionism, and I realized that you really could not talk about African Americans in isolation, that you had to talk about them in the context of the broader movement. So I started writing uh, interracial history of the abolition movement. Uh, And then as I started writing that, I found myself going further and further back to the 18th century, uh, and then it became just this very big movement history of abolition uh, from the American Revolution to the Civil War.
1: We're taught this very limited uh, view in American history textbooks and in our classrooms about abolitionism. What What is it that we're getting wrong?
2: Well, I think abolitionists are commonly portrayed as these... Uh, individual, sanctimonious do-gooders, and predominantly as Northern whites who did not have uh, much of an idea of what was happening in the South. Uh, And what I found was in fact quite the opposite. I found that the abolitionist movement had a very diverse history, a very long history, a diverse membership of African Americans, women. uh, And we know some of that, uh, but it has always been told in a very piecemeal fashion. And what I wanted to do was as I said earlier, tell a movement history that really centers uh, the disfranchise within that movement.
1: Is it as obvious um, to to say, as as we say about many other things in history, that the reason we believe this other history to be true is that white men tend to write the history books? I mean, is that really why we have the history books we have today on abolition?
2: Well, uh, I I, I don't know whether it is because men predominantly wrote, wrote those histories. But it is true that there was a certain revisionist view of the Civil War that was very entrenched in American scholarship, uh, and that really looked at abolitionists as these kind of extreme fanatics um, that caused the war. And even, you know, in popular culture where they're seen as more heroic, they're seen more as these outstanding individual figures. Uh, and so what I wanted to do was to talk about the movement in the broadest sense possible— and to look at the ways in which they enslaved themselves, influenced abolitionists, and were part of the abolition movement, uh, and the ways in which the abolition movement had all these transnational connections with uh, radical movements that existed in the 19th century
1: and, and we'll be getting to some of those in a moment it's a fascinating story if you want to join us uh, to talk about this history eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. so if indeed the abolition movement didn't begin in the early uh, 1800s and it, it stretches back to to colonial times t- tell us how far back you you researched this how far back does the abolitionist movement really go
2: well, I went fairly far back. I went really back to even early modern Europe where I saw these individual African writers um, who were writing about um, um, enslavement and race in early modern Europe. Uh, and I looked at some European traditions uh, that were averse to slavery, going right back to the English Civil War, the levelers, the diggers, the Ranters, these radical sects that denounce uh, colonial slavery as it was being formed. But more than that, I went back to, to Africa, too. I looked at shipboard rebellions during the slave trade. I mentioned them as part of the origins of the movement, um, the devastation wrought in Africa. A lot of history has looked at African participation in the Atlantic slave trade. Uh, and in that history, African resistance to the slave trade has gotten lost. And I looked at the ways in which some pioneering abolitionists, Quaker abolitionists like Anthony Benizet, were really influenced uh, by the information coming out of Africa, both of African resistance and the devastation that the slave trade wrought in Africa. So when I say that you need to look at the origins of abolition, you really need to go back to um, these pioneering early Black and Quaker voices uh, and also, of course, uh, resistance to the moment of enslavement. Uh, by African people themselves.
1: What was the role of uh, African slaves in the American Revolution?
2: That's a fascinating question, of course, and uh, increasingly historians know that um, uh, enslaved people tried their best to win their freedom in whichever way possible. So, for instance, in New England, uh, Connecticut, Massachusetts, et cetera, enslaved people sued for their freedom. They petitioned for their freedom. Um, they, they joined both sides um, in order to win their freedom. Uh, we know in the South, especially, uh, large numbers of African Americans joined the British because they had an offer for freedom uh, with Lord Dunmore's proclamation. But that took place also in the North. And we know that many, many enslaved people, thousands, left with the British. Uh, and so here you have a, a sort of a counter-narrative <laughs> virtually of the American Revolution, where for many enslaved people, uh, the new American re- republic was the site of enslavement, uh, and, and, and they were trying to win their freedom.
1: And, and a fascinating story, too, of of some slaves who would go and fight in place of their owners uh, and were then able to se- secure their freedom through that kind of a deal.
2: Right, absolutely. Uh, there were some masters who sent their enslaved people to fight, uh, and, and the, the idea was that they would get freedom. And also, different states started fighting you know, actually passing laws, uh, giving enslaved people their freedom, so that even if uh, if your individual master tried to hoodwink you of your freedom, at least there was a law in place that if you had served in the Continental Army, you could win your freedom. Of course, there were two states, uh, as usual, in mm-hmm. the Deep South, South Carolina and Georgia, that did not follow uh, this path and and restricted. Uh, people of African descent from enlisting with with the Patriots, um, and uh, even though at that point, by that time, uh, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and some of the other sort of um, uh, luminaries of the American Revolution supported that plan. Um, there was a there was one man who I think is uh, has the distinction of probably being one of the few white abolitionists coming out of South Carolina. Uh, a man named John Lawrence, who who really tried to persuade his home state um, to allow black people to enlist and win their freedom. Uh, unfortunately, he was unable to do so.
1: When you talk about the interracial movement that you were um, starting to discover as you wrote this book, is it an interracial movement that is truly blacks and whites working together, or is it two separate paths of many blacks working to uh, obtain freedom for black slaves and many whites working at the same time but not necessarily working on the same path?
2: That's a great question, um, especially for the, for the early abolitionist movement uh, where you have uh, predominantly uh, sort of white manumission in abolition societies. Um, you could say that in the Revolutionary Era, these are two paths that, that sort of converge uh, at one point. Uh, you can see this in the early republic, where black activism sort of converges with the efforts of the early manumission and abolition societies. And I make an argument in the book that, in fact, these societies are being formed because of black activism. So the first abolition society founded in the United States in 1775 Uh, Society for the Relief of uh, Free Negroes Unlawfully Held in Bondage, comes together because they're trying to take up the case of an Afro-Indian woman by the name of Dinah Neville and her four children uh, who has been unjustly enslaved and who's trying to win her freedom. So these five Quakers come together in order to, to, to help her, to assist her. So even though those early abolition societies were not necessarily interracial in membership, Many times they worked with African-Americans and tried to further black claims of freedom. Um, So the interracialism of the early period is a bit different uh, than the interracialism of the 19th century, where you actually have African-Americans within the anti-slavery societies uh, as lecturers, um, sometimes as presidents of societies, uh, occupying prominent places within those societies. The early abolition and manumission societies were not necessarily interracial, though they had no clause that said African-Americans couldn't join them. The only clause sometimes some of them had, like the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, was against slaveholders joining them. Uh, but they were all white. Uh, but there was an aspect of interracialism that I was able to uncover, mainly by looking at, uh, you know, not just insisting of in, assisting of enslaved, but also... The, the sort of relationships that are formed between early black reader leaders like Richard Allen, who founded the Amy denomination, which was, of course, the church that was—the uh, massacre took place in Charleston. Yes. It's a historic denomination. Uh, how he, people like Richard Allen, Absalom Jones, worked very closely with Quaker abolitionists that dominated the early abolition and manumission societies.
1: If we think of the Civil War being about slavery and the years leading up to that being a political battle over slavery in part. It seems as though the story that you tell here is one of early abolition being much more a moral or religious struggle. Can you talk about that period and that transformation of how we thought about abolition as something that we needed to combat from a truly moral standpoint Mm -hmm. into one that became a real political issue amongst the states?
2: Again, that's a great question, because if you look at the early abolition societies, they are dominated by, um, by Quakers, sometimes dissenting Protestant sects. Um, there, there was a dissenting Protestant tradition that was uh, anti-slavery, and you had early anti-slavery writers like Judd Samuel Sewell in Massachusetts. Um, so you could say that at that point, um, there is a sort of Christian inspiration uh, to the to abolition, and of course, there's the rise of Black Christianity, which completely adopts the message of the Bible in terms of uh, uh, the enslaved people being the chosen people of God and trying to win their freedom. Uh, in this land of Egypt. And you can see black ministers really absorbing that me- message. It, it, and, is, it
1: is easy to imagine that that message of early black Christianity getting across mm-hmm. and, and taking real resonance within the community, certainly. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. There's a sort of, you know, they, they, they use that philosophy of exodus and, and chosen people of God to, to actually um, critique both the existence of slavery, but also set up an alternative set, sense of self worth. Amongst enslaved people, so even though people of African descent are being Christianized, they're not absorbing the kind of Christianity that their masters want them to learn, which is you know enslaved people should be obedient to their earthly masters. So you have Christianity, you also have of course Enlightenment philosophy, um, and we know that despite the existence of natural rights ideas, and you know the famous contradiction of course is Jefferson himself, um, you know slaveholding continued. Uh, and expanded in the early republic. I think what the abolitionists do, and this is where I I really try to make this claim as an original claim in the book, is they take the natural rights philosophy of the Enlightenment and convert it into more of a human rights uh, philosophy. And they develop systematic responses um, to people like Jefferson, et cetera, who believe in natural rights, but who make an exception for black people based on, on racial arguments. Um, And you can see that kind of secular argument against slavery go hand in hand with the Christian argument against slavery. Uh, But you're right, of course, it gets politicized fairly soon over the question of the expansion of slavery. Um, And this is where I um, think that we need to look at the connections between the abolitionist movement as a social movement and the growth of political anti-slavery in the North. Uh, Many times historians have you know, talked about the emergence of political anti-slavery, but do not discuss its abolitionist roots. So for instance, the first big controversy over the expansion of slavery, the Missouri controversy, uh, abolitionists are very much part of that controversy. And you know, early abolitionists like Benjamin Lundy uh, at that time is 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 so happy that this controversy has arisen over slavery uh, and that northern congressmen are taking a stand against the expansion of slavery, that he names actually one of his sons after uh, the New York congressman who proposes this restriction of slavery in Missouri, James Talmadge. Uh, So I I think historians need to be a little more mindful of how political anti-slavery also sort of owes its roots to the abolition movement.
1: We're talking with a historian, Manisha Sinha, whose book is The Slaves' Cause, A History of Abolition. When we come back, we're going to be talking more about some of the global ties uh, that she uncovers in the book also ties to the women's rights movement and also bring it up to the current day as we talk about everything from Black Lives Matter to American nationalism once again what are some of the things that resonate with her again if you want to join our conversation eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. this is where we live This is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're talking with professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, Manisha Sinha, whose new book is The Slave's Cause, The History of Abolition, or A History of Abolition. And this is a a different history of abolition than perhaps the one that you got growing up in the classroom. And it's fascinating, and it's wide-ranging. And if you want to join us, 860-275-7266, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live, another one of the things that your book does is it, it makes these global connections, not just to American abolitionism uh, inside America and in the colonies, but then also in Europe, in Haiti, in India. Talk about some of these global connections that you uncovered that perhaps we haven't read that much about.
2: Yes. So when I started writing uh, this book, I wanted to write a movement history of abolition in the United States. But I did want to place it in a transnational context uh, because, of course, there's so much influence of what is happening outside the United States uh, in terms of the way abolition grows as a movement. Uh, So for instance, I see the Haitian Revolution as very much part of the story of abolition. Uh, And I think historians have not done a good job at looking at the ways in which abolitionists viewed the Haitian Revolution and how they were inspired by it. I mean, there's a lot of new historiography on the significance of the revolution, which has been fantastic. And of course, early black writers were the first to to uncover that. Uh, But I really looked very particularly at how abolitionists viewed it. Uh, and what I found fascinated me, um, and not just the early British abolitionists against the slave trade like Thomas Clarkson and William Wilberforce, who defended the revolution, but you had the Haitian government naming one of its man of wars after Wilberforce. Mm-hmm. So they knew that they belonged to the same movement and the same side. Uh, it's just that historians hadn't uncovered those connections, more so maybe with the French abolitionists uh, than they did with, with the abolitionist movement as a whole. But more fascinating, I found that pacifist abolitionists like Garrison, who was devoted to nonviolence in principle, um, lauded the Haitian Revolution and defended it uh, in The Liberator. So even for those abolitionists who did not necessarily advocate a violent overthrow of slavery, the Haitian Revolution remained a source of inspiration. And this is particularly true for African-American abolitionists who constantly refer to Haiti. Um, And they do so particularly after 1820, when Haiti is united as a republic. Uh, So despite the somewhat tragic history of the country of Haiti in terms of what happens after the revolution, um, sometimes, you know, it's this this sort of poverty of the country, the internal dissensions um, aggravated by the policies of other Western slaveholding powers in the Americas. um, It remains a source of inspiration for abolitionists. And then as I carried the story forward, I noticed an uh, enormous amount of connections and communications between the British movement to abolish the slave trade and the early American abolition societies. I mean, there's correspondence, um, they publish uh, pamphlets. They're inspired by the mass movement in Britain, and Britain becomes kind of a model for, um, for mass abolition. Um, and in the 19th century, um, you can again see abolitionists looking to Britain, But not necessarily defending Britain uh, as, uh, you know, defending the British Empire, which is the way many historians talk about it.
1: And that's what's so fascinating to me, these connections, again, that we may look to Britain in a way as a guide toward the abolition of slavery. And then all we need to do is look at the expansion of the British Empire and look at places like like India Mm -hmm. and, and see that, uh, Britain and the way it views the subjugation of people is not one thing.
2: <laughs> exactly. And, and you know, the idea—many historians sort of accuse abolitionists of being sort of hypocrites for criticizing slavery and not looking at other forms of inequality, whether it is imperialism or workingman's rights. And I found that that narrative was essentially, you know, wrong-headed, because uh, abolitionists, even though they admire the British example— not so much the British Empire or the government, but the British abolitionist movement and its tactics, uh, you know, its print culture, its uh, system of lecturing agency, they adopt those tactics of the movement. But they're very critical of the British in terms of implementing of abolition or emancipation in the British Empire as a gradual movement and compensation for slaveholders. Garrison completely rejects that. He says, if anyone deserves compensation, it is the enslaved. And it's an immediateist movement, um, and there are British abolitionists also who are immediateist and critical of the way that the British government implements emancipation. But more fascinatingly, I found that American uh, abolitionists and British abolitionists, particularly Garrisonians in the sort of mid nineteenth century, are very very critical of British imperialism in Ireland, in India, and you know, as an Indian woman writing about American abolitionists, I was. Delighted to to see that there were actually personal connections uh, between abolitionists and some early Indian nationalists like Raja Ram Mohan Roy and Dwarkanath Tagore and and maybe these were connections that didn't interest American historians but for me I immediately recognized those names having grown up and being educated in India and and when I uncovered those connections uh, I I realized that the abolitionists were truly committed to a wide ranging um, sort of um, emancipation movement that rested on uh, the bedrock of human rights. They were not these single issue anti-slavery people. That they actually um, linked the slaves' cause with other causes and other wrongs in their world, and that fascinated me.
1: And, and as a as a female Indian history scholar, you, you also make connections to the women's movement and to the role of women in the abolition movements that perhaps have not gotten as much attention?
2: Absolutely. Um, You know, there there is a sort of a a historiography that acknowledges that some of the sort of pioneering spokesmen for women's rights were in the abolition movement, but I don't think they realize how much the, the, the early women's rights movement was indebted to the abolition movement, both in terms of organizing of having conventions in the eighteen fifties to fight for women's rights, developing lecturing agency system. They sort of modeled it after the abolitionists. And and many of these women had been very active within the abolitionist movement. Um, they were abolitionist feminists, people like Lucretia Mott, Abby Kelly Foster, Lucy Stone. Um, they were really they came of age within the abolition movement, uh, Angelina, the Grimke sisters, and even before them, African American Uh, women abolitionists who were speaking out in public against slavery, slavery, like Maria Stewart. Um, So there is a long history, I think, of women's activism within the abolition movement that does translate into the emergence of the women's rights movement from the abolition movement. And this, again, I think sort of illustrated the radicalism of abolition, uh, because they quickly outgrow the sort of moral reform, religious benevolence rhetoric. In fact, they are fighting Many of them are fighting against the church because of their support of women's rights. And it does lead to a division within the movement between some of the more conservative abolitionists uh, or some of the more sort of practical-minded abolitionists, even who do not want to saddle their cause with another unpopular cause. But it does emerge, really. I mean, I, I think if you look at the trajectory of the women's rights movement, um, I would argue that abolition is probably the the sort of single largest influence on the Origins of that movement. Now, of course, after the Civil War, they split. Um, there are, you know, women's rights activists like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, who split from the abolition movement because they do not want to support uh, Reconstruction amendments that exclude women and that give black men the right to vote. Uh, and I think that split actually. Um, was it was, you know, it, it, on the one hand, the women's movement became more independent, but on the other hand, they also lost the abolitionist commitment to racial equality. Mm. So, as I say in the book, you know, some things were gained, but a lot was lost for the American women's movement.
1: I, I wonder what what you think all of this history can teach us about some of the modern uh, social movements that we see today. Um, we have often heard criticism, and I've certainly talked on our on our program before about movements like say Occupy Wall Street from a couple years ago which in some ways was criticized for not being about one thing, it was about many things. Mm -hmm. Just as as you write that the abolition movements were much more complex than just about Mm -hmm. Mm anti-slavery in America. So given all this history, what do you make of everything from Occupy Wall Street to Black Lives Matter to some of the other modern social movements that we see in America today?
2: Again, a great question. You know, I end the book with talking about the legacy of the abolition movement uh, and the emergence of other radical movements. And in our own times, I think movements like Occupy Wall Street or Black Lives Matter uh, can be really seen as descendants of the, the, the sort of abolitionist impulse uh, to perfect American democracy, to address existing and entrenched economic and racial injustices. Um, there are other sort of, uh, sort, of sort of extremist right wing movements that claim that the abolitionists were their sort of predecessors, and I think that that claim, you know, really doesn't hold much water because many of them belong to organizations that actually defended slavery uh, right unto, you know, I think one of these organizations, evangelical Christian organizations in the South, defended slavery or apologized for defending slavery only in the 1990s. So if we have to draw a sort of um, uh, a line that traces what happens to the abolitionist impulse in, um, you know, in American democracy, in, in, in society in general, then really I would say these are the movements um, that seem far more uh, similar ideologically, but also in terms of a call to political activism uh, to the abolitionist movement.
1: How do you view the, the call by uh Ta-Nehisi Coates, the, the great writer uh, and, and budding historian, someone who started as a journalist and dove deep into uh, the world of slavery and what it has meant for America today, when he says that there is a case for reparations for, for not just slaves, but for everything that America built on the backs of slaves, through the lens of what you've researched, how do you view that, that call, that notion?
2: Well, you know, I I really like uh, the work that Coates does, and, and of course his fantastic new book. Uh, and I think what I like about his work is is how historically aware he is, uh, and how deeply he he understands uh, the legacies of slavery or systematic racial discrimination. Um, and in a way, you know, what he is asking for is very similar to what the abolitionists were saying. It was someone like Garrison saying, you know, compensation is due to the slaves. Or um, Garrett Smith, the, the land reformer who wanted to redistribute land amongst enslaved people. Or even during the Civil War and Reconstruction when abolitionists tried to push this. Uh, unfortunately, this was one thing that they did not uh, manage to succeed. Uh, but they tried to push for the redistribution of land. Uh, amongst freed people to break up the plantations. And there were radical Republicans in Congress uh, at that time who supported that abolitionist demand. Um, and, of course, the demand came from enslaved people themselves. Um, the whole 40 acres in a mule during the Civil War, that was General Sherman's field order to break up abandoned plantations amongst freed people. Uh, most freed people latched on to that demand and wanted economic autonomy. That's how they defined their freedom. Uh, unfortunately, that did not happen. And not only did that not, that did not happen, but they also lost the rights to political citizenship that they had actually won uh, during Reconstruction, when you have the overthrow of Reconstruction, what I call the abolitionist vision of an interracial democracy, and you again have that long nightmare of of lynching, segregation, debt peonage, convict labor, uh, et cetera, that kind of descends on the nation um so i think coates notion that that reparations are due systematically uh, you know i don't know what the political uh, as a historian i will mm-hmm. speak as a historian i think it's a historically legitimate idea
1: is is there a sense though that that there's a, a failure of the abolition movement to have gone far enough when when it did so that we then had these many many decades of lynchings and um, slavery, in in truth, if not in in real name, did the abolition movement stop short of where it needed to go to get to uh, an America that would have a type of real racial equality that we clearly do not have right now?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I talk a little bit about that in the book, where I say it's not that the abolitionist vision failed, uh, but that it was overthrown; that their opponents uh, were far stronger uh, in the end. Uh, And there's a common sort of uh, refrain that some historians have that, okay, the North may have won the war, but the South won the peace. Mm. Uh, And now their historians are saying, but there was no peace. You know, the violence in the South against uh, black people uh, and their allies was widespread, and and Reconstruction was overthrown through widespread violence, etc. So I'm not sure that the abolitionists failed, but that they lost. So I looked at some abolitionist memoirs, um, in an earlier article, it's not in the book because I think the book was getting too big <laughs> already. But uh, I, I noticed that those abolitionist memoirs were not triumphalist. Um, you know, you look at at Douglass's narrative from the eighteen nineties, or you look at abolitionist writing after the fall of Reconstruction. I mean, many of them died, so they were spared the the sort of the the, the overthrow of Reconstruction that takes place um, by the late eighteen seventies. But those that lived to see that happen. Um, really write memoirs that are memoirs of defeat and maybe that and and that are critical of what is happening. And and maybe that's why the the abolitionists have never been really popular in American history, because they always come down as naysayers to us. Uh, Mm. You don't get that 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 triumphalist tone that maybe, you know, you see in in sort of more mainstream representations of what's happening in the north at that time
1: or or even on the political campaign trail of today, which is Mm -hmm. something we we see all too often Mm -hmm. that uh, in just the last two minutes that we have, that idea of naysayers—you're right—it's not part of the great American narrative that you read in history books or that you see movies about. But, but damn, it seems to be like one of the most important things we ever did, right—to really stand up and say no in a in, a, in an irritating a very um, difficult way. And that's the story that you're telling here, right?
2: Absolutely. It's a story of activism. And we think of the end of slavery as just like this singular event, you know, during the war. And I'm saying that, no, there's a history of activism behind it that led to that moment and also that tried to define freedom in more progressive and broad ways. Uh, The fact that they eventually lost does not mean that we do not recover that tradition or try to live up to some of those those visions of interracial democracy uh, that abolitionists had. Um, so yes, I mean it, it's not part of the normal Whiggish history of the United States because it's a far more contested history. I think people forget that freedom doesn't just automatically expand on its own that the founders write the declaration and the constitution and it and it just sort of automatically expanded to include a lot of people no this is a very contentious history people had to fight for their rights and sometimes things went backwards and I think that's the lesson really important for people activists ordinary citizens in the United States to realize that things can go backwards that unless you constantly as the abolitionists wanted to do um, put these ideas on the nation's agenda, and and literally, you know, fight for your rights. Have a history of activism that 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 does not necessarily sort of happen on its own.
1: Manisha Sinha's book is *The Slave's Cause: A History of Abolition*. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up next in the program, our own Diane Orson sits down with Erica Christakis. She sparked controversy on the Yale campus over issues of racial and gender tolerance on campus, but she also has a new book out. It's about how we teach preschoolers. It's a fascinating conversation, and it's coming up next, Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up on tomorrow's show, an effort's underway to bring high-speed Internet to residents across our state and create competition for the existing cable and broadband companies. At a time when the state's business climate is under scrutiny and the state budget's in crisis, what's the best solution to expand and improve Internet connectivity in Connecticut? Hope you can join us for that conversation. Diane Orson, our news director and Morning Edition host, is here with us now. She's going to bring us an interview with a Yale lecturer who was in the news a lot last year in a story that we followed closely. It was about race and speech on college campuses. Uh, she's also written a new book. And uh, first of all, welcome back to the show, Diane. Thanks, John. So, so tell us about Erica Christakis, who we're going to hear you talk to.
0: Well, I met with Erica Christakis about ten days ago in our New Haven studio. Um, she's a lecturer in. Uh, early childhood education, affiliated with the Yale Child Study Center. She's a licensed preschool teacher and director. And her book is about her concerns of over the direction of preschool and early learning in the US. Um, it's called The Importance of Being Little, What Preschoolers Really Need from Grown Ups. And as you mentioned, if her name sounds familiar, she's also the person whose email about Halloween costumes last year uh, led to racially charged debates on the Yale campus. One I might add that have been have been echoing on college campuses across the country.
1: Um, you talked with her about that controversy, and we're going to hear that later on in in the conversation. But first, let's talk about her book. She says it's time to think differently about preschool and early childhood education. Uh, centering on relationships between young people, young children, and the grown-ups who are around them.
0: That's right. I began by asking her how preschool teachers can help to find what she calls the learning zone, a particular place for each child that's the best place for them to really learn.
3: Well, I think we have to go back a step and just look at what the landscape looks like right now because there have been so many changes in how young children are being educated. I call it the preschool paradox, which is that young children are hardwired to learn in pretty much any setting. And they come into the world with such a huge capacity, hardwired to learn. And yet we find a lot of problems in early learning settings. We've got kids who are being expelled at exponentially growing rates. We have From preschool. We have children being medicated off label at very young ages for attention problems, and we have lots of anecdotal evidence that parents are frustrated and feeling a push down from the core curriculum and some of these other common core. Uh, I think that we have a little bit of a crisis, I would say, in terms of how young children are learning. As you said, they are hardwired to learn through relationships, through experience, through play, through exploration. And the problem is. That we are not giving them the space and the time to do those kinds of things because preschool is really scaled to a sort of adult tempo. And adult expectations. And one of the issues that concerns me is this idea that we have kids living in a kind of adult size. We've sort of adultified childhood in a way. If you walk into a preschool classroom, you know, we all have an idea of what good early learning should look like. And often it, we're looking at it from a very adult perspective. So we see all kinds of stuff on the walls, you know, posters and lists of words, vocabulary, all of those kinds of things. We've got very, very rapid transitions. The schedule's divided up into little chunks because we assume that children have short attention spans. Well, actually, anyone who's ever observed a child looking at an animal or holding a baby or digging outside in the mud, you know, we know that actually children have very long attention spans when they're engaged, when they're interested, when they have something meaningful to think about. So we need to kind of resize the early childhood Uh, habitat, if you will. And by that, I mean the space for them, the the emotional and intellectual space and the physical space for them to to play and to be a child. But as you say, there is great
0: concern for preparing children to build what they call readiness skills um, so they'll be ready for higher level learning. When I read your book, it sounded to me like yours is a more zen type approach where it's not about aiming for the bullseye so much, let's say getting a kid to learn how to read or getting them to learn their numbers, but more about preparing to shoot the arrow, so to speak, and then it'll land on the target when the time is right. Am
3: I right about that? Well, I think, yes, it's true that I I'm really urging a more developmentally based approach. And every child develops in his or her own way. And so we do need to listen more to the child's own rhythms. However, I, I do think we need to reject a very common dichotomy between play on the one hand and work on the other. This is a really pernicious and dangerous belief that has taken root among many educators, parents, and the media, where there's sort of this idea that, you know, you either focus on the social and emotional skills through play-based learning, or you have to prepare children for an uncertain future, and we need to drill into these skills, or they'll be left behind. Actually, the research is quite clear on this point, that It's through play and exploration and relationships that children develop these high level skills that we need them to acquire, including literacy skills, mathematical thinking. I'll give you an example. When children are playing with blocks uh, in an open ended way, and by that I mean they're using the blocks to represent things, to fantasize. They might be building a castle or a fort. They're doing lots of high-level thinking. They are using geometry and physics. They're using high-level language structures. Studies show that when kids are playing, they use better grammar, they use more varied vocabulary. So they're using those skills um, through rich experience-based exploratory social play. The problem right now is that we're focused on skills as an endpoint. We're not focused on skills that are the byproduct of learning. So if we say that our goal is to get every child to learn the alphabet at age four, you know, that can be a very tedious way of learning. But if we say that our goal is to provide a foundation for literacy where by third or fourth grade, they are able to acquire information, to synthesize it, to think critically, to make connections, that's a different, um, pedagogy. And so we need to get back to letting kids learn in this more holistic way. We really have a lot of preschools where Teachers are silencing children. They may not mean to, but they silence them in subtle ways. You know, we might look at a child drawing and say, You know, I like your house. That's a really pretty little house that you built. Well, that's very different than saying, Tell me about your drawing, which is an open ended way of talking to a child. We script um, the conversation. We use a method called direct instruction, which is overused in preschools around the United States, where the teacher is really controlling the pacing and content of the uh, conversation. It's harder, in a way, to go off the script. You know, you have to be a skilled teacher. You have to be ready to seize on opportunities um, to build rich language. And I think that's why we sometimes rely on the script so much. What would you say to someone who might say, um, well,
0: this approach sounds ideal for an advantaged student who comes home to a home where there's lots of books, where they're being talked to and listened to a lot at home. But for those children who are living, let's say, in more concentrated areas of poverty, that that might be an argument for a more um, scripted
3: approach to teaching them. Well, that certainly has been the argument. But if you look at the studies that are coming out, I think we're beginning to see some pushback on that idea because, again, it's sort of um, short-term wise, long-term foolish. You know, the children who aren't having opportunities at home to talk, to be heard, to listen, to enjoy books, to do those kinds of things, to play around uh, outside, those are exactly the children who need more conversation. Those kids, unfortunately, are at double the risk of having a classroom taught in this model that I'm describing, this uh, direct instruction model where they they don't have the chance to really interact in a conversational way. And so they're getting kind of a double whammy. And I want to be clear, it's not as if skills don't emerge from play. You know, we know that they emerge. We know that kids are actually using higher-level language at play than they are when they're sitting at a desk, let's say doing a worksheet um, you know, with some grocery carts on one side of the paper and then some numbers on the other side, and the child has to connect, uh, you know, with his pencil, the one side of the paper to the other. You know, that kind of worksheet mentality is, is very foolish, um, and it doesn't really uh, bring out the sort of deep thinking that young kids need and particularly the children who are at risk. Have you seen the impact
0: of this more prescribed type of educational Philosophy and curriculum since No Child Left Behind, uh, have you seen that playing out?
3: For example, when you were teaching at Yale, with students who you taught. Well, I think that we um, we now have about a decade and a half of experience with the um, introduction of No Child Left Behind and the uh, more sort of standards based approach to early learning. I don't. I think it's a bit of a stretch to see you know to to draw conclusions in terms of what I'm seeing in college classrooms, but. I do think that we are seeing a a shift, Um, you know, the way I phrase it is that kids are working harder and they're learning less. And I think there is some evidence of that when we look at studies like the one that just came out of Tennessee, showing that children uh, who came from these very kind of scripted, controlling, uh, more teacher-directed preschool programs, you know, by the time they got to some of the older elementary years, they seemed to be doing worse. Kids are powerful. They have the ability to learn in so many different settings. And even if you are trapped as a family in a less than ideal early learning setting, you know, people have to make compromises all the time and they don't always have the choices they would like. You know, I think parents need to feel reassured that the most essential learning environment really is that relationship between the child and his or her loved ones.
1: That's Erica Christakis talking to our own Diane Orson here on Where We Live. Her book is called The Importance of Being Little, What Preschoolers Really Need from Grown-Ups. Your conversation, Diane, with Erica Christakis turns to the issue then of race, safe spaces, and free speech. Um, Before we continue, let's play a little bit from a a debate that I took part in. I hosted one on these issues on college campuses, and this was at the... uh, the campus of Connecticut College, New Yorker contributor, and UConn Africana Studies Program Director Jelani Cobb was one of
4: our guests. My biggest issue, perhaps, in this entire discussion is not the debate over free speech. It is not the question of whether there are codes or standards of propriety in society, but is the presumption that people who have never faced a particular problem can determine how someone's sensitivities should be calibrated in handling that problem. It is the logic that says that I, as a man, am in a position to tell women you're overreacting to sexism. It is the argument that says a person who is in the majority understands the implications of what it means to be a minority. And this is the basis, the kind of white omniscience, the white male omniscience that I find most troublesome in this conversation.
1: And that's Jelani Cobbigan uh, talking with me on stage at Connecticut College. We, we were talking about that in part because of a controversy that, that started at Yale University following an email that was written by your guest here, Diane, Erica Christakis. Um, this racially charged debate went on at Yale. In Missouri and a lot of other college campuses. Um, In an email to the Washington Post, uh, Christakis had had written, I worry that the current climate at Yale is not, in my view, conducive to the civil dialogue and open inquiry required to solve our urgent societal problems. How did you broach the subject with her?
0: I asked her if the email about Halloween costumes was in part a response to A climate on college campuses that perhaps she sees as offering less room for people to make their own decisions, even if those decisions may inadvertently offend someone. These are issues she brings up even in her book about young children.
3: Well, I want to say, first of all, that I would probably find the exact same things offensive and hurtful as the vast majority of my critics. And I I really do want to express uh, empathy for people who are harmed by um, offensive stereotypes and so forth. Um, but I do think that said, that there are a lot of different ways to respond to hurt. And sometimes, you know, we go to, um, sometimes we respond by. Uh, filing a complaint or a police report, or we report to a professor or to a a supervisor in a job. Other times we talk to our friends when something goes wrong. Other times we choose to ignore something. You know, there's a whole toolkit of responses. And I think that people of all ages, particularly young people, need to feel secure that they have these different uh, strategies to respond to things that hurt them. And my belief is that sometimes... Not always, but sometimes we do need to give young people more space to negotiate these things, particularly because it's very hard to know um, what is going to offend someone. You know, there's a lot of debate about that. It's not always so simple. It's sometimes hard to know that in advance. So I think if we can create, when we get back to um, the kind of ideal environment for learning for young kids, uh, if we can create an an environment where children have a chance to get to know each other, to develop friendships, to be in dialogue, to listen, to ask questions, to be comfortable with people who maybe see the world differently— that's such a great start in life. You know, it gives you confidence and it gives you the tools to navigate lots of unknown experiences. Erica Christakis, thanks for coming in. Thank you very much.
1: That's Erica Christakis, a former lecturer at Yale University, uh, talking with our own Diane Orson. Christakis' new book is called The Importance of Being Little What Preschoolers Really Need from Grown Ups. We'll put links on our website to find out more about the book and also to my interview with Jelani Cobb from. University of Connecticut that we spoke of earlier. Our program produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producers, Kion Wolf. Our digital editors, Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Talarski. Thanks to interns Stephanie Reif and Ross Levin. Continue this conversation online, wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John dankowski and thanks for joining us.